Inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3733 East Broadway. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. Coming to you on Power Talk. Please go to our website, powertalk.live. Download our free app and stream all of our live local programming, including Solomon on Blast, the Jim Parisi Show, and yours truly, the Jake Feinberg Show. We can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today. And without further ado, I want to bring in an artist who has been creating on his palette for the last half century. Uh, he's always been interested in sonic expansion and, and consciousness expansion through music. And uh, he's mainly well-known as a hardware guy, as a, as a guy who's built rigs for cats like John Cipollina and orchestrating the, the sound and the engineering of the band known as the Grateful Dead. But he's actually also a mercurial musician in his own right. And uh, we just listened to a, a, a clip of a cosmic band that he was in just a lot to get to today. High honor, Dan Healy. Welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Hey, Jake. Good to be here. It's so great to hang with you, man. Such an honor. You know, I just want to ask you straight off if you could talk a little bit about your experience with Neil Cassidy and the beat poets of that time in the Bay Area, Ferlinghetti, and how that they shaped your uh point of view is related to constantly organic, spontaneous, new creation? Well, um, uh, that, that sort of gets into the politics of, of the whole San Francisco music movement, which uh, is, uh, is an interesting concept or, or an interesting uh, conversation all, all in itself. Um, I knew, of course, knew all of those guys and hung out, and we all took LSD together and did all, you know, uh, hung out, but um, the, the, for the most part, the circles that I ran in were really more concentrated in the musical aspects of it. So there were there were a, a, a group of us that mostly became the bands that were really found ourselves running into each other in some kind of magic cataclysm uh, in the, the early 1960s in the Haight Ashbury um, that were. That, that had all come from various walks of life around the country, and but had one sort of interest in common, and that was music, and and in my case, music and sound, and how the two could go together. You got to remember that prior to that, the, there was no connection between live concert sound and the actual music. Uh, the, the sound systems were called public address systems. You could hear Elvis singing over some squawky speaker somewhere with the, with no microphones anywhere on any of the instruments or anything. Right. So that was where where it was when I started. And so um, it was me and the ones like me that 
sort of conceived, or for me, I'm not going to really only speak for myself, although I know a lot of my friends felt the same way, um, that uh, I, I, heard, I heard the music in my head along with everybody else. I came from a musician background, so I was really a musician before I was uh, 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 into sound and recording and stuff. But I noticed right away, one of the very first things I noticed was that I, I, hearing the music and then hearing the way it actually came out in, uh, in, in, in terms of audience concerts or even on records and stuff, there was like a huge disparity. And I've discovered that way from in front that, that I had the ability to translate the music that in, in, from in our heads into the actual physical mechanics of the equipment. And in the day, it was pretty crude, but, it, but as it, the years went by, of course, that was part of the evolution of the music, was the evolution of the techniques and the, and the, and the equipment and stuff. But So I, I kind of wound up spending my life, uh, instead of the original intention, which was playing music, um, spending my life uh, uh, kind of helping other people play music and helping the audience hear the music that we were we were actually hearing in our heads. I think Jerry Garcia probably was the guy that really got me to do that because he was the first one that recognized that I had uh, a, a been given a gift um, of the ability to translate uh, into the equipment. Uh, the, the 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 emotions and the thoughts and the sounds of our our, our music. So uh, he was the first one to challenge me to to get involved in that side of it. But uh, it also was interesting and 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 a lot of fun. And I and I I just went forward in it. I started in a recording studio. I started in 1963. I got a job in a recording studio in San Francisco called uh, Commercial Recorders. And the guy that owned it, there are two guys that owned it, uh, Lloyd Pratt and uh, Steve Atkins. Uh, Lloyd Pratt was a bass player, uh, and he played in a group in the uh, World War II 1940s cabaret group, group uh, called the Page Cavanaugh Trio, and he was a bass player. Right. And uh, Downbeat Magazine, which was really a famous uh, uh, production uh, back in those uh, uh, he was Downbeat Jazz magazine bass player of the year for two years in a row 53 i think and 54 really around in there. Was he playing he was playing yeah. he was playing like bebop in a trio setting or what was it i mean this is fascinating no, he, yeah he was no he was playing i guess you would say he was playing sort of cap or lounge music uh -huh. uh, of the 40s so that would be like kind of uh, uh, the, the small the benny goodman trio version of the benny goodman orchestra <laughs> so the, a lot of the guys played the orchestrations but because it was a trio or a quartet it was a, it was a smaller uh, a group but the same songs and that sort of thing so he played that kind of music okay yes and so he gave me a job as a janitor in the recording studio in his in his studio and i literally vacuumed the place and cleaned the shitters and stuff but it gave me a chance because this is before the days of internships or any of that concept uh, and they're also in colleges and schools and stuff and didn't offer any any recording uh, the only place you could really learn about uh, uh, recording and sound would be if you were in the military then they you, they had what they called the signal corps and that was pretty much it so I got a chance to hang out in the studio, and, and I did. And eventually um, the day came when, and by 1965, 64 and 65, the record companies were sending emissaries to San Francisco to scout, as, as, as talent scouts, 
uh, to find bands to sign. And so um, this studio worked five days a week. It was Commercial Recorders was the name, and it made commercials only. It made jingles and stuff like that. And in those days, there weren't national commercial spots. You know, the, the San Francisco radio stations played uh, commercials that were made in San Francisco, L.A. and L.A., New York, New York, and so on and so forth, Chicago. So it wasn't nationwide like it is now. It was very local. And so we, this studio produced all of the, most of all the commercials. It was a very popular place. And uh, on the weekends, it was dark. So the record company people wanted to uh, buy blocks of time on the weekend to bring bands in and do what they called in those days demo tapes. And so uh, the, the, the principals didn't want to work on the weekend, so they said, hey, kid, here's your chance. You, know, you can be the engineer, and, uh, and we'll sell blocks of time to the record companies, and, and you can run these bands through. Wow. And so that's literally how I started recording uh, and, and got my, my first job actually twisting knobs and learning how and all that stuff. I mean, I, I was always a freak for all of that stuff, so I knew pretty much how it worked. But that was the first time I was really being paid for actually doing it. No, this and is, then from this then is on, a, I want to I want to I want to just because you're you're riffing, sure, you're, you're, on, you're on fire. Sure. But but the, 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 I want like when I interviewed Marty Ballin, I just want to go back to the, uh, yeah. you know, I, I've done I've interviewed the prank a lot of the pranksters, and you know, like Ballin was talking about the king and queen of Reno in his basement when he was a teenager performing with a black jazz band down there and i just i guess what i wanted to ask you really simply like i know you became obsessed with sonic expansion garcia challenged you and eventually you know the work you know you had to sing for your supper so you obviously became an engineer but the thing is that that uh like the it was i just was wondering if you could talk about the the what those cats the Ferlinghetti's, the ginsburgs the the kerouac's the, 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 those pranks. What is it that you were asking about him? What, what I'm trying to ask. What, what is it that you want to want to hear? It, well, because you, I, I, I've, I, their, their, their adherence to being an individual. We're, we, we live in a very formulaic time now. We live in a time where it's cool to sound like other people. Okay. Before it was no, you have to be different. In fact, if people came up to you and said, "Hey, you sounded like this person," they'd want to, that you'd want to slit your wrists. That was an insult. Exactly. So I'm trying to get at this idea of, of those, how much those guys emboldened you as a musician and your peers to being to finding your own individual sound and voice because we're living through a time right now where it's much more popular to be comping other peeps. Yeah, um, actually none. Okay. Okay. Good. No, <laughs> All right, that's the blunt answer. <laughs> but but let me just tell you. Okay. Break it down. Um, more honestly, uh, we we kind of. We're on. We're, we were on our own trip. We were sort of. You, you've heard the phrase "rebel without a cause." We were rebels with a cause. And what was our the cause? cause? What was the cause? The, and our cause was music. Mm-hmm. All right. And we wanted to express ourselves musically. We had grown up uh, listening to our parents li- uh, listen to big band music, and then in, in the fifties, uh, the early for- late forties, and early fi- and all through the fifties was bebop and rock and roll, and uh, Bill Haley and the Comets and Chuck Berry and that kind of stuff. And when uh, we got into uh, psychedelic drugs. And uh, if you if you if you mix psychedelic drugs with electric guitars, um, a, a whole other thing begins to happen. And I, 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 a, a sufficient number of us heard the possibilities, and that was the difference. And that's what we pursued. Uh, for me, the 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 sort of 
bebop poets, the Ferlinghetti's and all of those guys, uh, Ginsburg and all those guys, they were like 50s beatnik kind of guys. And so they were they were 10 or more years older than us. So they were they they played their role but their role was more in the politics and stuff they wanted to their their goal was to change society uh our goal was to play music though they dovetailed because we shared the same audience if you get uh, uh if you get a few petulant teenagers together they're petulant teenagers if you get enough together you can call it a movement and so a lot of that was conscripted. A lot of the energy of the youth that, that followed the, the, whatever it was that attracted people to the city, um, uh, people began to conscript it and use it for various other things. So there were movements that had involved politics. There's movements that involved society. There were movements that just were mechanical and musical and had only to do with the, the, the field of the arts. Um, the poster people... The, the the Mouse and Kelly, uh, all of those guys, um, Moscoso, Moscoso, uh, exactly. George Hunter, yeah. all, those guys, they, they they were that was a whole other version of self-expression. Now it was clearly based on psychedelic drugs. Stanley Mouse pinstriped cars in in the, in the late fifties and early sixties. It used to be really popular if you had a hot rod to have flame jobs. Okay, so that's what those guys did. And then when this all began to happen. They got involved in making posters and did and did what has now become fantastically famous art, and so that was kind of what they did. We kind of did music, so there were there were a whole bunch of people, but we coexisted in the same sort of area and the same place. And some of our uh, our uh, uh, um, experiences overlapped each other's in the so far as as is the government and the law and some of the things. From in in our case, in the music case, uh, we were always up against some kind of. We were always in trouble because of something we were doing in the audience. All right, <laughs> we were either playing music too late or too early, right. or not or too loud or not loud enough, or in the wrong place, or or drawing people here or blocking a street there, and so. We were always that was always a contention, and and for a while it got to be the cops versus us, and that's where all of that fuck the band stuff and tear tear down the walls stuff came from. But unfortunately, a lot of that ended in throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So I'm, I'm not sure, you know, as I look back uh, over it, how much of the rebellion was just for the sake of rebelling, and how much of it was really a message. But that's, you know, that's up for each and every person to decide. That's, that's my version. Absolutely, and that, that's, I mean, I only want the Dan Healy version. I'm not interested in some sort of, you know, you know sort of, you know, declarative statement. The, the, I, I have a belief, though, and, I, I, you know, you, you have to correct me if I'm wrong. Were you getting off, I mean, you had, you were a bass player originally, and I wanted you yeah. to talk about... I mean, were, were, were you getting off on Mingus? Was there seminal live performances where you saw, or, or Scotty LaFaro? Because in the early 60s, the call and response between Scotty and Bill Evans was hypnotic. And I'm like, you know, I bet Healy, I mean, ultimately you look at Healy Treese and you have such a deep bag of tunes. And a lot of the tunes are R&B and rock tunes. It's not like you're playing jazz. But I feel like you were you were enamored by the jazzers. And I would like, I'd like you to talk about your, your influences on bass. Yeah, uh, um, I, I was. You're absolutely right. You read it. You read me just right. I felt that. Um, yeah. Bill Evans is one of my absolute idols. You know, right. George Shearing was a fantastic piano player oh. that, I, that I just idolized. Killer. Um, a lot of people, uh, even I, I, I started out uh, listening to Art Tatum. Have you ever listened to Art Tatum? All the time. I mean, 
Yeah, uh, Art Tatum gives me goosebumps just to think about him. You know, he was he was a genius and a fantastic player. So those are the people that I was really I I, I was really enamored of and re- really was blown away by. And so when I started playing, I had all, and I plus my parents were both musicians and my grandfather was a musician. So I kind of came from a, a musical family. I was I can remember being so young sitting on the piano bench next to my mother where my feet wouldn't touch the floor and her band would be rehearsing in our living room, okay? So that's that's my background. So as like I said, I started out as a musician. I didn't start out as as, as do, being a producer and an engineer and stuff. But anyway, yeah, the background for me was that um, and Richard Treese, the f- bless his heart and, and rest his soul, a fabulous, fabulous singer and player. Oh. Uh, he had a lot of the R and B in him, and the bicycle was headed into a great place. We were just branching into jazz. I have tapes of us playing jazz stuff that I don't think in, are floating around. Are you and serious? I only have in sixty-five, sixty-five, roughly in that in that range. Yeah, no, no, that was like more like sixty-eight. Okay, I just want to go back for a second. This is the important thing because I know Bill Evans. I'm, I'm just, I'm thinking about the bass as an individual voice in itself. I mean, there was like, were you doing the upright? Were you trying to play to those records of those early '60s upright bass players? Because it was really at that point when I interviewed Miroslav Vichuas. You know, a lot of people say in Weather Report he was like one of the guys that first Stanley Clark. They had the the bass was an individual. I would have to agree with that. You know, but early '60s, I'm like. Is he was Healy's ears growing listening to these guys playing, not just keeping time on, not just locking the groove, but playing 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 their own voice. Um, I I can't really take credit for that. For me, playing bass was I wanted to. I had I heard a, 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 dry, a more driving. I'm a more of a driving bass player. If you listen to old bicycle tapes, I, I I'm like the, sort of a driving bass player. So I I'm not. I wouldn't call myself an exp- that much of an expressive bass player, not like so many of the really great players right, are. Right. Um, but I, but I, I, because I, I was the groove. It was all about the groove for me. <laughs> and I, I got off. We had a drummer, Butch Giannini, who unfortunately had a heart attack and died. At, we were playing at the Whiskey A Go Go in Hollywood. Wow. And uh, we had a five night stand there. Wow. And uh, we uh, we were. Uh, we after the third night he had a heart attack and died he was probably the most fantastic drummer i've ever known in my life and uh, the him and richard treese and i were really the bicycle and then we had stephen fisk who, who was our sort of songwriter and singer although we all wrote songs and then we had a guy named al rose who was a really good keyboard he played hammond organ and, and electric piano and that was the bicycle and we had a really cooking little band and after butch died it just it, it I was so devastated. I I I went back into the studio and uh, um, and and started and and did producing other people and stuff like that. But at that time, we were we we were really headed out there, and we were broke into playing jazz. That's what we wanted to play. We were trying to to fuse together that concept of jazz and 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 kind of rock and rolly, but but uh, but 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 with with keeping it driving and stuff. And uh, also a uh, country and western music. I I also have a, a country and western music heritage. So 
that was all swirling around in my head, and I was sort of into sorting all of that out back in those days, and that's, so that's what I was doing. Well, so well, I, I wasn't yeah. really, uh, you know, I, I, I can't really take credit for being one of the beginners of, of some of the styles that became famous. Well, let me, okay, I just, just to show you that I've been on this trip for six years, uh, I did this interview almost, almost three years ago, and I want you to take a listen to this cat uh, talk, and then we'll come back and break it down, okay? Yeah. You know, I was hoping for the audience you could go back and talk about how you originally met Dan Healy. Dan Healy, wow, okay. Um, how did I originally meet Dan? Okay, I met Dan Healy because I was jamming at the Grateful Dead house on Ashbury Street. Jerry Garcia and Bobby Weir had been helping me in. And I was jamming there at the house, and, and Danny was the sound man for the dead. And he was jamming. There was a guitar player there and some other people. And um, when the dead took over the carousel ballroom and started running it, sort of basically in competition with the film work, um, they, after a while they decided to have a Tuesday jam night. It was Mickey Hart and Jerry Garcia and Norma Kalkinen and Jack Cassidy. And so, uh, and Mickey had invited me up to hear him play. And um, the next week, Bobby Weir called and asked me if I would be the drummer. <laughs> and Danny was the bass player in that. And we went on to form a group called, uh, well, it was originally Hoffman's Bicycle. Uh, about Albert Hoffman falling off his bike, but uh, it just became the bicycle and... Uh, Oh, we went through all the usual rock and roll painful. Wait, hold on a second. I, I just, we, Healy was playing bass at the Karis. Who was he? Was playing bass in the band? He was playing bass. Uh, he was, you know, he was. He had ambitions to be a bass player, and he was playing bass. And uh, that was uh, that was the bicycle for a while, and then. Uh, all right, Mr. Healy. Who do you think that is? Uh, that's obviously Jim Stern. It is obviously Jim Stern. Three years, August 6, 2014, he dropped that story on me. And so that's taken the bicycle back uh, to earlier than... 1968. So that's 68. and, and he's, Yeah, that's when we had the carousel ballroom. 67, 68. Could you t uh, talk to me and my audience about the... Uh, because I, I, heard, I read somewhere about the meme, the meme troupe. Bill Graham had the meme troupe. Then he took over the Fillmore, and I just yeah. Don't... He did the meme troupe long before he got into uh, being a rock and roll promoter. Right, but then he got to, so. But can you just talk about how this Carousel Ballroom versus the Fillmore came to be? Because I've done so much research on the Fillmore when it was <laughs> when it was tr truly just a Chitlin circuit run by Charles Sullivan before Graham got the gig. I just want you to take us through that. Yeah, okay, here's what it was. The Fillmore Corp. It was owned by a company called the Fillmore Corporation. They had an office down about a block and a half down from the Fillmore, on Fillmore Street, from the Fillmore Auditorium, which was Fillmore and Gary. Um, you, it was a 1940s ballroom, a leftover from World War II, swing time era, and it was largely dark. And um, you could rent it for $200 a day, uh, or in the evening, and, and, and it would mostly was uh, wedding commencements and graduation commencements and, and the church socials and that kind of stuff, and so anybody could rent it. Uh, a guy named Bobby Collins, uh, who 
was a, a, an entrepreneur that lives in the Haight-Ashbury. He was friends with the Quicksilver Messenger Service people. And, uh, and, and the charlatans, he knew I hung out with all of those guys. Uh, Richard Olson and uh, uh, Mike and all of those guys. Um, and um, he would occasionally rent the Fillmore and, and put on shows there. And that was back in the acid test days. Right. And so um, the, uh, he, w- he would rent it for a night. We would charge two bucks at the door to get in. And when the $200 got earned up, everybody else got in free. And it was really a place to, for us to play our music. And, and, that, and this, this goes for all the San Francisco groups. And this is early. This is 65, 64, 65, around in there. This was uh, um, uh, even the, the, the airplane and Grateful Dead. And Air, Grateful Dead had just switched over from being the warlocks to the Grateful Dead. Wow. And uh, they, hadn't, had, they had nowhere to go, and, and nothing to do and nowhere to go. So, <laughs> so, uh, um, um, they, uh, so we began doing shows there, and, and it got to be pretty, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know how much you want. In those days, the, the concert world was really run by the AM radio stations, Tom Donahue Absolutely. and those kind of guys. And they, and they had, like, the Cow Palace and the, the, the audit, Shrine Auditorium and places like that. And if you weren't in their clique, you didn't play around town. And the reason that we got the Fillmore's is that nobody wanted it. So we really got a place that we could rent that it was outside. It was about being different. It was about being outside the structure that had kept us out because they didn't own us, right? And we didn't want it at the time to be owned. And also, we were very young, and we were just figuring out what we were going to be and what we were going to do and stuff. So uh, we started having these shows in various places when we discovered that a lot of the halls around you could rent, and they weren't large halls. The film was not a big place. I remember thinking it was the biggest place in the world, but it was, it's actually teeny compared to big places. But um, we would rent it. And then eventually what happened is that Ram ran it a couple of times also, and the Meme Troop did some of their stuff there. And then he sort of got into the, the promotion thing, and he, be, he, he was a businessman more than anything else. And so he eventually, the Fillmore Corporation, uh, instead of dealing with a, a different people every weekend, and then there were squabbles over who got it over any given weekend, because by, by then, by 1966, it was really popular. And so uh, they finally said the first person that has five thousand dollars can have the year, uh, a year a lease on the place. And guess who had the five grand? Okay, Graham and did. The, yeah, so, that's right. <laughs> Graham. So that became Graham's uh, uh, Graham's Rock and Roll Hall. And as soon as it did, so it, then then he ran everything, and then it was him, he that decided and picked who got to play and who didn't get to play. And so then it was right back into. Uh, and for, I mean, I understand business and like that. I, I'm not. It's not a disparagement of anybody. It's just the way the way the, the, it works in that world. And so we um, we had we once again we were didn't have a place to play. The uh, I had a friend named Furlong who owned a tape recorder. He owned a, an Ampex three track tape recorder, and uh, the, in those days that was a big deal machine. And so he would rent it to me to record. Our, our, you know, Grateful Dead, Quicksilver, and, the, and Big Brother, and the bands that I did sound for, and, and then recorded and stuff. And uh, so he, he, I went, I rented a machine once for him, and and he said, "Oh, you have to pick it up where I was using it last at a place over a Buick dealership on Market and Van Ness called the Carousel Ballroom." Ah. And none of us even knew it was there. And I went and found this place, and it was 
just like the Fillmore Place. It was owned by the Hibernia Society, which is Irish, the League of Irish Voters. Okay, um, and so we made a deal, and 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 they let us have it, and we took it over and started the Carousel Ballroom, so that once again we had a freedom place to play. play you know, so that that's kind of what happened to the Fillmore. It's fascinating. I mean, I I'm always curious about also. Um, when I talked to Ken Babs, he said that that you that the Grateful Dead you had your own at the at the Longshoreman's Hall. Can, when you Longshoreman's Hall, can you talk? <laughs> can you talk about it? Your, the, the Flex Fest. because he. I mean, oh, there's two. There's two questions. The, the Dan Buchla, who also left us. Did you have a relationship with that cat? Don. Don. Don, Bu- Don Buchla. Did did did, did <laughs> because that cat. Seems to fly, you know, Beaver and Krause, those cats get a lot of the credit, but I think that... Right. But, uh, can you talk about that cat and, and his significance to the Bay Area? Well, no, he was just, he was a gyro gearless freak, uh, you know, and, <laughs> and he was building, uh, uh, like like me and a bunch of us, you know, and he was building, his whole thing was the synthesizers, synthetic music, and you know, noisemakers, generating noise. I mean, most of us were using guitars and basses and uh, drum sets, he imagined being able to recreate the sound. He he and Moog were the guys that sort of uh, 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 they heard in their heads when we were what we were hearing. They were hearing a way to take electronic equipment, and this is way before their time, and and make it sound like orchestra or, orchestral instruments, which you can do now all readily and easily. But in those days, the wherewithal wasn't there. But nonetheless, they had the dream of it, and they were on that path to do that kind of stuff. And so they were, they, that's how, that was their piece of pie, and that's how they were involved. And naturally, we were, since we were all freaks and all experimenting with this stuff and trying everything, every new idea, nothing was excluded. No, nobody's ideas was, were excluded. It was, it was uh, open and fair game. And that was one of the things that we tried the hardest to maintain was, was to, to, to lay off everybody, leave everybody alone, let everybody do it, you know, live and let live. That's, that, that was it. And for me, to this day, that's still my motto, you know. So, so that's how those guys got involved. And um, the uh, Longshoreman's Hall was another place that you could rent. And they used to, and I'm not sure, I knew some of the principals, but I'm not sure exactly who, uh, who all was involved in it. But I know that with respect to Babs, and the Longshoreman's Hall, there was a gig that, that, that's the, uh, probably one of the most notorious gigs. You might even call it infamous, but for, for sure famous <laughs> gigs in San Francisco called the Flux Fest. And that was at the Longshoreman's Hall. And that was like the huge turning point between uh, the, where, where uh, acid tests, which were a rel- fairly small gathering, w- became sort of the cat got out of the bag, and 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 and, and the, a larger scale got hip to what was going on, and and then then it, then that was maybe among the, the 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 unveiling of the whole larger picture of the entire San Francisco social scene, the Haight Ashbury social scene, so to speak. So the Flux Fest and the Longshoreman's Hall was that place. And right after that, the Longshoreman decided not to have too many more shows there because it got out of hand. The Flux Fest was a little bit out of hand. Nobody got hurt or anything, but for that, you've got to remember in that day and age, just being stoned on acid and doing stuff like, 
taking off your clothes at a gig was enough to shock the, the snot out of the straight society. So that got everybody up in arms, even though there wasn't really any harm. You know, nothing. One of the nice things about it is none of us was up to harm. Once in a while, people got hurt from being naive and not knowing how to be careful. But but there was no and never any malice. There was never any hatred. There was never any animosity, and th- there was no room for any of that. And that's probably the part of the whole '60s music scene that I, that I admire and respect the most. And I don't know what's become of that because we seem to be living in a world of violence now, and and violence begetting violence, and and. A lot of it has to do with some of the presidential administrations. Uh, a lot of it has to do with other various aspects of life and politics. But in those days, it was really uh, all for one and one for all, and, and and we managed to live it. You know, so we not only we didn't just talk about it; we lived it. No, I th- I'm talking to Dan Healy here on the Jake Feinberg show. I, I think the word is trust. I mean, you guys had a lot of trust. There was a lot. There was there was a security. I mean. We glorify, we glorify violence in our society now. You know, at 39 years old, it's hard to, you know, I mean, we, we, it's hard to fathom that. And then you have like, th- you know, gigs like Altamont that, you know, maybe, I don't know if you were present at that gig, but it was like, there was carnage. I did the sound for Altamont. Right. So, so it was a, dr- but I mean, like, <laughs> can you talk about, because what I'm saying is there was anarchy to a degree there, but yet it wasn't, it wasn't. The, the anarchy and the violence was not glorified. I think basically it was pretty devastating to Garcia. It was pretty. It was kind of a drag. Well, it was uh, a big drag, and uh, uh, it was largely uh, from misguided and misapplied um, uh, politics and misapplied uh, 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 opinions about things. Uh, nobody wants to hear this, but in a very large sense, uh, I think the blood is on Mick Jagger's hands. Okay, that's the way I see it. But uh, he's the one that incited the, the audience. But it's it's not that it's not as simple as just that because there were other people there that there were. Let me just preface by saying that there's people that, that there were people that, that and I guess it's one of those bummers about society. But there's people that always got to poke the dog with a stick. Okay, mm-hmm. you know, there's those kind of people, and they just can't seem to stop themselves from doing that. For the most part, the rest of us were more than happy to just love one another and have a good time and enjoy being there, right? But there's always those one or two people that have to incite and that just can't keep their hands off of things. And there was a guy there that um, that was one of those guys, and one of the things he did is he gave handfuls of tabs of acid to all the Hell's Angels. And another misguided thing was, was allowing asking the Hell's Angels to be security, security guard. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> that was a big fucking dumb mistake. Okay. And then dose them. And then dose them. You know. And then dose the shit out of them, and then be surprised that it went run amok. No, sorry. <laughs> um, uh, and then it didn't help to have Mick Jagger stand on the stage screaming in the microphone, "You fucking dumb Americans!" You know. Uh, yeah. uh, what do you what what you know? That, you know it's, it's, so uh, uh, it it was. It, went, it got out of hand, and it was inspired by its own misbehavior, okay? And that's a shame, because it forever uh, spoiled what the fun that we had and, and the ability for us to congregate without... I mean, it left in a mark that to this day makes people skin crawl, mine included. And, 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 that's, and that's a shame, because that wasn't what we intended to do. So there's an example of, of what we were doing that got conscripted by some other entity or some other mentality, okay? 
No, yeah, this is this is true. I I also think about uh, going back to Hoffman's bicycle, the the original iterations, even growing up, and hearing. I guess it was your mom or your grandma was would 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 play in the living room. Is that what you said? I mean, you'd listen to them. My mom. Your mom. My I mean, mom. Can you talk yeah. to the audience about how you, Dan Healy? I mean, when how you de- I think one of the crises that's, of course, I'm not really into pop music, so like younger peeps, I I don't necessarily know the music they're listening to and I have to it's a double-edged sword but it just seemed to me whether it was Garcia or you go back to the Jazzers it was they everybody had a deep bag of tunes they knew the American songbook they knew all these classic tunes and then all obviously rock was burgeoning but I just wanted you to talk about how you ultimately developed a big bag of tunes if you look at those Healy Trees uh, live shows I mean, it's just like there's like four dozen songs in a, in a gig, on a gig. And it's like you, I mean, you All guys, right. I mean, and I'm trying to figure out today. What my point is today is you, you, you throw out to cats today, younger cats. Hey, play this. They don't know it. They don't have a big bag. And I'm like, how did right. you, how did you develop your, your bag of tunes? Well, for one thing, there wasn't the internet. There wasn't, uh, there, there wasn't, uh, iPhones. There wasn't uh, any of the multimedia stuff. There was three basic television networks, and otherwise that was it. And the TV stations went off at midnight. And so the only thing we really had was uh, was radio that we listened to. We all grew up listening to, to listen to the radio. And jukeboxes, playing music on jukeboxes. But we also had our parents and the heritage. America had a, has, has, has the most magnificent heritage of music dating back 200 years since the beginning. And for some reason, that music was regenerated and, and retaught, and, and the songs were hummed. and They called it crossover tunes in those days. So there would be, like, <laughs> right, right. Hank Williams would write a country and western song, um, uh, Rags to Riches, uh, that Tony Bennett would sing and have what they called a co- crossover hit. So there was a melding of music and an overall uh, sense that, that, uh, the, that the different styles of music were equally valid and equally had had a point and had a heritage and a, and a, and a home and a place that they come from. So uh, in my case, and I think, and I've talked to, to, to Garcia about that, we've rapped about that before, and we had largely the same kind of thing because his, his parents, his dad was a musician too in the 40s, okay? And so we grew up listening to the, our parents' music, and then after that, uh, also I, where I lived, my mom played big band music and stuff like that, but, but the area that we lived in was largely country and western, so a lot of people adhered to that music. And uh, in the case of Garcia, he was a bluegrass guy. He grew up on bluegrass music. But um, we, uh, all of those backgrounds are, are all songs that I think if, if you learn songs when you're young or you hear songs, you're, you're influenced, it, and then you get older and you realize, hey, sh- shit, I could do that song myself. Now, that's what happened to me. Mm-hmm. So I, and t- today, if I sit down with my guitar, I play songs from 40s all the way up to, you know, heavy metal. This so, is, and, yeah. and it's just because yeah. it's because uh, of, of the whole sense that all all music is all all belongs together. A very special day. Uh, upon this glorious occasion, it's our sound mixer, Mr. Dan Healy's birthday. Now we can't let. <laughs> 
We can't let an occasion like this go by without making a big
Reverend Lenny Hart stole a lot of money, uh, and then, or, or that's at least the story. And then, um, so then uh, uh, Sam Cutler had the band, uh, you know, getting their chops up. They played hundreds of shows, then went to Europe, and all of a sudden they started making some dough. They had a lot of money, and they could have gone off and bought their, their ranches and their cars, and they could have just, you know, spoiled themselves. But instead they gave you and Asley a, a million and a half bucks to build the wall of sound. And I wanted... Yeah, pretty much. Can you, I mean, can you talk about, like, the idea of where, because a lot of this stuff was, there was no written contract, so could you just take us through the story of basically saying how the band said, this is yours, and then ultimately how you and Owsley went out and, and found the materials and the equipment, where, where you got it from to build the Wall of Sound? Well, um, uh, the... What I talked about earlier about the early days in the San Francisco music scene and uh, hanging out in the Haight-Ashbury, uh, where, we, where everybody's ideas were welcome and we, and we tried to leave everybody alone and let everybody manifest their dreams and ideas. And in fact, everybody. Uh, the Grateful Dead carried that on after, after the bean counter sort of got involved in other areas and in other bands and in other situations, the record companies, bands signed with record companies and that sort of thing, uh, publicity freaks, lawyers and all of that, and all of a sudden everything got a tight asshole, okay? <laughs> yeah, right. So, um, uh, but, so I, and I have to, I, I think I would have to, to credit Jerry Garcia. He is the one that single-handedly put his foot down and, and kept the door open for creativity and kept the uh, the bean counter and the and 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 the and the legal beagles and all of that stuff at bay. Um, the true the Grateful Dead suffered more than there was more than there was a number of people that took down took money from the Grateful Dead. It wasn't just Mickey's dad. It was uh, a guy named Ron Rackow took us down for a bunch of money. That's right. Um, That's right. Uh, You're right. Uh, Cutler was was not good for the Grateful Dead. Um, uh, uh, so we it took a long time to get past that, and we suffered uh, nearly fatal blows. The only thing we had is we had our music, and we had the the the, the confidence and uh, inside our hearts that we uh, we knew what we what we wanted to do, and that nothing would stop us. And so we went forward. Um, when the sound went when when in the early late sixties, early seventies. We had basically used the sound equipment that was designed for talking movies in the mid-1920s, okay? And we had hot-rodded it, and it was, it was spiffier looking, but the actual theoretical designs and stuff were really based on the Bell Labs uh, and a company called Western Electric that, and RCA that did the original uh, uh, re- research and development of, of, of high-quality music sound systems for talking movies. So that was financed by the movie industry. Wow. Um, by the ninth, by 1970, we had milked every drop of, of innovation out of the, those old principles and ideas, and so it became time to uh, to take a departure. And that's where guys like John Meyer got involved. Um, these and uh, John Curl and uh, um, and a number of other guys, Ron Wickersham, uh, and, and a number of other people uh, who had had who were who were. Designers and 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 and, and uh, mathematicians and stuff like that, and it really became a matter of, of scrapping everything that we know and start all over again. And so, the uh, Garcia understood that, and so we proposed to build the Wall of Sound, which was to be an experimental lab 
we, uh, we called it a breadboard, which is lifted from an old radio phrase from making, uh, uh, making uh, experimental radios and stuff like that. <laughs> um, and the object was is that it could be configured in any conceivable way. So we broke it all down into individual pieces, and then when we, we, you went to play a show, we, uh, we could configure it in any fashion that we wanted. And also, it was another thing that dovetailed into that was for the first time ever, um, designing the sound system to match the venue you're in. So if you're in an old theater, it's, it looks one way. If you're in a big that had ever been done. This is all way over the heads of the manufacturers. And the manufacturers, JBL and uh, Altec and all of those companies, we went to them and asked them to get involved. And their attitude pretty much was, fuck you, we're selling shit faster than we can make it, so why would we want to change any of this? Hmm. And they, were, they didn't know it, but they were tolling their own death knell, you know. But uh, at the time, they didn't, couldn't see that. Um, so we just said, okay. And we went on our own and started designing equipment, and that's where Crown Amps came from, and that's where all the Dave Blackmer, all the DBX, all of all of the people, all, it, it all saw that it was time to to to, to take a departure, and so a, a, a whole renaissance happened, starting in like 1970, and by 74, the Wall of Sound was up and running and playing. It was a fantastic, incredible scene, and anybody that ever had a chance to witness it, is, 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 is that's a once-in-a-lifetime event. It was and wasn't great. I mean, there were a whole lot of problems with it. But the one thing it did do is it proved beyond any shadow of a doubt that it was time to go forward and to time to adopt new ideas and time to stop holding on to the history and to get with new stuff. And, and it worked, and it proved its point, and then from then on, it, the, the, you know, the rest is, as they say, history. Being that Garcia, I, I, David Nelson, who told me an epic story about in like 65, uh, sitting behind the stacks of the Grateful Dead show, the amps and, and with Steve Parrish and literally uh, they, the dead were playing. I guess at that point they, they would take one song and, and a real improvisational and stretch it, stretch it out. And he was like, look, at, he was like, Steve, look, they're, they're, they're leaving in droves. They're leaving in droves. Like you'd have audience, uh, the audience just leaving because it was so foreign, you know, and, and eventually people would say to producers or, or uh, promoters would say, hey, Jerry, can you just play this song? Because it's really popular, man. It's a pop tune. People are going to get it. And Jerry would say, "Yeah, what's what's the you know what good is it for? What what good is it? You know, forget it. Well, why do I do it?" So I understand that he was the the avatar of sorts to put his foot down. But could you explain how after Rakow, uh, uh, the the Reverend Cutler, whoever else, these shysters who over and over ripped the band off, still when the band was less than ten years uh, together, how did they still? How did the band still? How did Jerry convince them to say this is still the, the the path we need to go on, even though they were getting ripped off? Well, first of all, it was probably the audience saw Nelson and said, "Fuck this, I'm out of here." <laughs> Fuck Nelson, man! No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I know. Love <laughs> Nelson, dude. <laughs> um, uh, uh, the uh, the 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 music was. Uh, w- for, let me just tell you that none of us ever expected this to go anywhere. We thought that tomorrow it's all going to blow up. Right, okay, right. none of us ever ever dreamt. First of all, nobody ever thought they were going to live to be over thirty. All right, and uh, so uh, none of us, and we all we all just assumed that we were would ride it until it stopped. And so, if, with that as the sort of basic 
um, basic premise, it, it did one thing, it kept it fresh, because there wasn't any reason to cling on to anything, because none of us gave a shit whether it lasted or not. So playing old songs and preserving this or trying to cling to something or trying to draw an audience, well, nobody cared. I mean, we, we, it was all, it, it was, we, were, we were going for it. It was all in. And so when you're in an all-in situation, you don't, you don't look back. It doesn't really matter what anybody thinks. And that, that might have been true to a degree, but eventually um, it became, uh, eventually when we got to, to learn how to play well enough that our music wasn't just a bunch of noise, but it began to have some, a little bit interest, right. become a little bit interesting, sure. um, people started listening. And people, once again, people, uh, people heard what we heard in our heads. Uh, through all the various means that it, we managed to communicate it to the audience, and the audience liked it. You know, I mean, they figured it out and, and decided to go for it. But to, to take it back, none of us really expected that to, this to ever come to this point. The fact that we all became legends is something that is beyond my beyond my ability to to comprehend. Okay, I mean, I just we, I just thought, okay, well, you know, day after tomorrow, this is going to blow up in our face, and I'll go get a job in a gas station or something, you know. So, um, and and I think that we all sort of thought that, you know. Can you uh, just touch on this idea of? Uh, I mean, it seems, at, I mean, I, I've done my fair share of psychedelics, but being that I'm a Gen Xer, and when I talked to Dave Getz from Big Brother, I mean, there was the League for Internal Freedom, which is sim- similar to cannabis clubs now, where you, if you have a card, you could have gone, you could go in and access uh, Sandoz Acid. You get, you know, free acid. And you're talking right. about this idea here. You said before an incredible phrase, you said the c- combination of guitars and psychedelics produces incredible stuff and i just was hoping you go a little bit deeper for the audience because when i look at when i hear specifically the crux of the band you know bobby bobby's rhythm chops improved we're just just he got better and better and better and better but when i look at the who were the true musicians at the beginning you know when i listen to the when the triad of kreutzmann lesh and garcia and i never saw the grateful dead ever in my life live and i got into them late well you got to remember that Pigpen was one of the best musicians I don't. Okay. I don't want to he leave out the, pen. I don't want to leave out pen. But I'm just saying, when you talk about the psychedelics, can you talk about in your experience the combination of melting, <laughs> melting into the music when you had this sand, this pure, not the, not the, not the, you know, the speeded up or the stuff that I was eating in at Boston University in the late '90s. But I mean, when you were talking about melting the guitars and the psychedelics and yeah, how- there, there was a lot of bad lsd around too there was okay, okay. well thank that, you that, thank that you for- was right from the very beginning there was a lot of bad lsd but when you got a chance to get some really good lsd it was it was a truly a profound experience and one of the things i think if, if you can if, 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 if there's if, it's so difficult to describe and so subjective it's 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 almost not worth trying to describe but one of the things that happens is that you get past um, the mechanics or the physics or the physical reality of what you're trying to play, and you get and you hear it. Uh, you hear it the way it, it was intended to be heard, not the way it actually sounded. Does that make any oh, sense? Oh, I to dig you? it. I dig. Keep going. I dig, man. I really dig. Okay, here's what. Here, I'll give you an example. There's been nights when the, I, I, I was stoned on acid and I thought the music was from Mars or from outer space, the most incredible, beautiful, 
stuff I ever heard. Next day, I'd listen back to the tape, and it sounded like garbage cans rolling down flights of stairs. <laughs> right, right, right. So, um, so there you go. I mean, it, it's really subjective. But so LSD is definitely a dream, um, and 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 that's all it really is. But it, but it, along the process of repeated taking it, it also creates changes in you, uh, in in your in you psycholo- in, in in each of us psychologically, and so. Um, some of the changes are good, some are not. If I had it to do over again, I'm not sure I would. But at the same time, I, I, that's sort of a, a moot point because I did it, and it's and it's and, and I don't have it to do over again. And it was what it was. And I think that for the most part, most of us try to make the best of it that we can. And I think that the ones of us that are still around today are trying to make the best of it that we can. But it was certainly, uh, how does the saying go, a long, strange trip. Well, I mean, going back to to Pig, I mean, Pigpen does... You talk about him. It was his band, no doubt. You would. You, he was the leader of the band when he was when he was alive. I, I wouldn't say he was the leader of the band, but he was the most experienced player in the band, and he knew he had the most music background. Uh, but he came from. His dad was a disc jockey for, for our a rhythm and blues station in Palo uh, Alto. Jockey. Yeah, absolutely, East Palo Alto. And uh, and uh, uh, I, I, there's a station called KSOL, KSOL. His dad was a disc jockey on it. And uh, so he grew up listening to to uh, rhythm and blues music from the 50s, and so that that was kind of his background. And he could sing and play that stuff and play harmonica all night long. I mean, I still do uh, Jimmy Reed songs that I learned from Pigpen and uh, Lightning Hopkins songs that I learned from Pigpen. That was one of the one, whenever the Bicycle or Healy Trees band played those kind of songs. Willie and the Hand Jive. I got it from those guys. You know? Right. Right. Um, uh, and and it was just another one of those songs. Of, hey, I know this song. Let's do it. You know, no one else was doing it, and it was a nice groove. And so we decided to do it. You know, so that's that, that's kind of you know the the, the 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 what you hear in your head, and uh, compared to what it really is uh, uh, the, in the cold light of day, so to speak, is the difference in with uh, with psychedelic drugs. So we heard that, and that's that was w- once you hear that. You, it's like knowing a truth. You can't unknow it, you know. And so we, we t- tended to pursue. And, and, and it, the object was to see if we could pull it out and do it any time we wanted, with or without drugs, okay? <laughs> and that was, that, was, that, was, that was certainly enough of a challenge, okay? Well, I mean, I, I mean just having a ball here. I, you know, I, I wanted to. I want to ask you, Healy. Uh, when, as far as I'm concerned, let me just say this. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, Grateful Dead actually pull, we pulled it off. We actually learned to do it. Well, anyway, I, you know, I'm, I, you know what I, you know what I, I want you to just if if this is interesting because you taught you you made it very clear it was sort of, you know, the music at first was sort of I don't know I don't know what the right word is but it wasn't necessarily listenable and then by the 70s like you said people started to listen to the music right they started to really get it right and eventually kept we started, well, first of all we learned how we started to learn how to do it well I'm, I'm curious as, as to how psychedelics played a role in growing the music from being i don't want to say noise but eventually into music like that to me is inspiring because you're right I mean, ha- I mean, you talk to any of the Ben Sidron or the cats from Steve Miller band. They, they, they would say, you know, the guys and some of the guys, a couple of guys in the Grateful Dead weren't even musicians when they started the band, you know. But That's eventually, right. over time, it became listenable. And by my favorite period of time, which is bizarre, is the early '80s. I mean, they were a ferocious 
stoned bunch of truck drivers driving down the highway, but it was ferocious music, and it was to me it was very listenable. But I'm just wondering about expand psychedelics and how if if in fact that crusade of sorts helped make the music more listenable. Well, I, I, what it is is that remember referring back a minute ago when I said the music we heard in our heads. It was flawless, because it was performed flawlessly. (laughs) But when it came to us playing it, it wasn't quite so flawless, because we weren't that good at playing. But as we learned to play and learned the craft of our instruments, then we began to get closer and closer and closer to the music in our head. So the music we heard in our head was harmonious and beautiful and fit together and interlinked and, and meshed and, 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 and complemented e- each other. And, and so it was pure harmony, uh, and, and, and not, in the, you know, not in the hokey sense, but in, 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 the, in the sort of, in the sort of com- combinational senses. And so uh, it, all we needed to do is learn how to make it actually sound like that. And, and, so, and I guess that was probably, you could you'd say that that's the definition of what we were up to and, and, how, and, and what motivated us and what drove us along the way. And like I said, it got to, by the end of, uh, by, by, by the year 2000, um, the Grateful Dead had done it. There's been nights at Madison Square Garden, uh, and, and just to name one of, of many, and, uh, that, that, that I heard the true cons- consummate uh, Grateful Dead. And, and, and people that were there will know it. If you were there, it's like Paul Simon's song, Kodachrome. If you, saw it in, if you saw it in Living Keller, you know it. Right. It's that idea of once you, know that you, once you see and know the truth, it's a truth. What, what year? I'm sorry, you said 2000. What, what, what year? Well, what? I, you know, in, uh, Grateful Dead got good in the 80s. Big time. And all through the 90s, okay. And then, and then, uh, then li- the vicissitudes of life began to t- take away from it and stuff, you know. But uh, it was, the 80s and 90s were just, there were sterling years of sterling performances, just staggering, hair-raising performance. We also had, Candace Brightman was probably very likely the, the most fantastic, greatest lighting director that ever walked the face of the earth. So the Grateful Dead had the best lights and the best sound, and I, there's been times when Candace and I and the band would collaborate and mesmerize the audience completely. And I, <laughs> I've stood there and where you could hear a pin drop between notes. Okay. This is, we've been cooking for an hour. Um, could we, could we, could we set up a set two or, or do you want to keep going? I, I maybe a set two sometime. I got other things I got to do. Right, I'm bef- already getting a flash here on my buzzer. Okay. No, I was going to say, I just, I would love you to, before I let you go, um, I, I just would love you to talk about the story about how you found Mike Larsheed, the bass player. To play, oh, in... Richard Tree found him. No, no, no. But this is this is this is after Donna Keith, okay? And you had God. Right. Keith was playing bass. Keith was playing keyboard. Keith... The Larch was playing bass. But you, but okay. This is going back. Let me just try to. You and you and Billy were sitting in a hotel room in the Uptown Theater and uh, playing Chicago. And you said because at the time Godshaw was playing bass, and you were like, "Where the heck is Larsheed? And then you wound up getting a phone call from him. I don't want to tell you this. You don't remember this story? I, I, I only vaguely. So, I mean, this, is a, this was, a, I guess here's the better question. Can you talk about what, listen, I've interviewed Gregorico. I've interviewed David Garibaldi multiple times, Michael Shreve, on and on and on, Dave Getz. Haven't gotten to Billy yet. 
I'd like you to just talk to the audience about Billy Kreutzman's drumming style and the really the first time you had a chance to play with Billy because it I think it probably dates back to that you know mid I don't know I just want you to talk about his style what made him such an incredibly good drummer. Um, uh, I think his uh, stamina for one thing and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, the, and the fact that that he doesn't he, he he didn't always know it about himself, but he was a natural drummer. But one of the things that that was really plaguing, uh, like he wasn't really a drummer uh, until he joined the Grateful Dead, you know. So he's one of the ones that learned to play. But he had a natural sense. It took him a, a bunch of years to get it together, but once he did, uh, he. Once he, you could get him to relax, he played good. He was one of my favorites. He still is. I mean, we had Butch Giannini, who was by far the, the best. With, but uh, next to him, um, uh, Kreutzmann was probably... Uh, I would play with Kreutzmann at the drop of a hat any time. What, what, like what, what, okay? what makes him such a fluid... And first of all, I didn't realize... I thought he was... Uh, well, he took lessons from a cat on Perry Lane, but, but he, was not a yeah. drum, when he was not a drummer when he joined... Well, yeah, he was. I, I, maybe I didn't mean that literally. I, I meant he, he he was a beginner. I'll put it like that. Right, and then you would. But in terms of because a lot of people will get on and say, oh, you know, it's it's not perfection. It's kind of sloppy. But for me, it's like I don't know. It just it, he just has this ability to swing so hard. But okay, you, yeah, um, that's for me. I'll tell you what Billy is. He's like your favorite old pair of shoes. Okay, <laughs> they feel good on your feet. All right, your favorite jacket. It feels good wrapped around you. Playing with Billy was what made makes me uh, relax and and enjoy playing music. He doesn't push you forward and he doesn't hold you back. And he and he and and he has no sense of 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 being of superiority or any of that bullshit stuff. So he's like he's like a comfy a, a comfy player and 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 he, with a with a great sense of humor. All right, and that's the kind of stuff that makes fun to play music with. I'll, I'll give you a little anecdote. One time, we were at a little nightclub in New York City called The Other End, sure. and we were playing along. And for some reason, Billy just got bored, and he put. We were doing one of those crazy things with the, the Healy Trees band would do, which is we would sometimes put down our instruments and just start singing a cappella and clapping our hands and doing weird shit, oh, yeah. playing rhythm shaking instruments and stuff. Billy got some spoons and he play, you, you ever heard people play spoons no, i love it you yeah know? yeah all right yeah. well you you, you 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 put you put two spoons between your finger your your index finger and your ring finger and you uh, side uh, side by side and then you, you whack them on your knee and it makes a clicking sound Absolutely. it's called playing spoons so you put your hand above it and your knee below it so you can have a, a up up hit a up click and a down click he did this spoon solo that to, uh, right now I got goosebumps just looking, just thinking of remembering it, and just stuff like that. Now wh- you show me a drummer that got the balls to do that, okay? And the point is, he was st- <laughs> it was still swinging really hard, even though he was playing this. It sp- was ass fucking kicking. Oh man. my god! No, because I tell you, man, there are some. There's a couple of shows. First of all, I am so glad that I did some research. But this is going back to Larry Klein. I th- I totally thought I was like, dude. I'm like, how the heck did Healy know? I'm thinking it's the Larry Klein that was Joni Mitchell's husband, the badass jazz player. But it was not. Yeah. It was a different Larry Klein. But you listen to some of these shows that are out there, not great audience recordings, but some of the space jams that you get off in, I've never heard Billy playing like that in my life, ever. 
He liked it because he was free from any of the regiments of the Grateful Dead and stuff. It's the same reason Garcia had his own band, same reason all of us had our own bands. Because the Grateful Dead by then, by, by the 80s, there was a certain expectation. First of all, we had 30-some-odd people on the payroll, so business had to go on. The office had to run. Uh, records had to be made because we had signed commitment contracts to make records. And so we had, uh, uh, we had mouths to feed, and when we had an audience to take care of and responsibility to show up and play and not let anything happen untoward to our audiences and stuff. So there was a whole side of the Grateful Dead, and not just the Grateful Dead, but any organization, any band, that, has, that is responsible. You can't just be carefree kids anymore. I mean, you have to pay attention. You don't want someone getting hurt at your concert. You don't want stupid things happening. So there, it, it got to be, there, there was the work side of it as well as the fun side of it. It wasn't always just fun. Fun is, is for a, a couple hours when you're on stage. That's when the fun starts and ends there. The rest of the time, it's fingernails on the chalkboard plus a lot of, of uh, blood, sweat, and tears. Mm. So, um, we, so when we had our own little side bands, it was an opportunity to go back in time like the Grateful Dead was way back when we were all kids and first starting out without all the attachment of all the responsibilities and stuff. Okay, and so once you do that, it tends to influence how you play. So he had a much easier groove going because uh, because because he, he could afford to do it without having without having a lot of responsibility. It was just there for fun, and none of us were really making any money doing it. We were we were our, we were making we were living because we of our Grateful Dead money. But uh, so this was an opportunity to to go out and experiment and have fun, so to go back to the beginning, so to speak. All right. Dan Healy, it was an honor. I hope you had a ball. I really did, man. Thank you so much, and I'll talk to you soon. All right. Okay, buddy. Later in. Dan Healy, sound engineer, genius, and uh, also uh, a musician, badass musician in his own right. Uh, We'll be back momentarily with uh, Alfred Roberts on the Jake Feinberg Show right after this.